This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. This is John Fralick, one of your hosts. This week, I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Shannon Ruzicki. Dr. Ruzicki is an internal medicine specialist at the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, Alberta, and a clinical assistant professor at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. She has research interests in equity, diversity, and inclusion in medicine, as well as physician wellness. She's the Associate Director for Physician Wellness and Vitality in the Department of Medicine, and she co-chairs the Equity and Diversity Working Group and the Anti-Racism Working Group in the Department of Medicine. Today, she joins me to discuss equity, diversity, and inclusion in medicine. Dr. Ruzicki, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, there's a few terms that I think might be important to kind of define up front for our listeners. I've often heard people misuse terms like equity and equality, and you've also introduced me to terms like parity. So maybe to lay some groundwork, can you help define these for our listeners and maybe some other things as well, like bias and discrimination? Absolutely. So equality refers to sameness, and this can be the same treatment or the same outcomes between groups. It is often thought of as objective because things are either the same or they are not the same. We are also legally required to treat people the same or equally in our workplaces and in healthcare in Canada. Parity means equal numerical outcomes. For example, equal numbers of men and women in medical schools is referred to parity. Scientists, researchers, and other people like parity because it's easy to measure. You either have the same number of men and women or you don't. Equity recognizes that people are different. These differences may be social, cultural, or biological. These differences lead to different differences in the ways that people experience the world, including how they experience medicine and healthcare. Equity means to reduce different barriers between groups. Sometimes it means that people will not be treated the same because people are not the same. Equity is more difficult because it relies on understanding the experiences of another group who is different than you. It is also a value judgment, how we value or not value differences between people. When we confuse or misuse these terms, we can have disagreements on whether we have equity, inequity, or inequality in medicine. So for example, many people say that medicine is doing a good job in addressing gender-based disparities because there are equal numbers of men and women in Canadian medical schools. But this actually refers to parity, and it has nothing to do with whether men or women are being treated equally or equitably. Parity is an outcome that might suggest that men and women physicians are experiencing medical culture differently. For example, though we've had equal numbers of men and women in medical school since 1996 in Canada, which is nearly 25 years, 18% of medical school deans are women, 17% of our medical society leaders are women, and 31% of the Canadian Medical Association leadership are women. These numbers suggest that parity in medical school has not led to parity in leadership and decision-making positions. There's also a great deal of evidence that men and women are not treated equally within medicine. One example is the different rates of harassment and discrimination reported by women medical students, residents, and faculty. So biases are innate attitudes towards people from different groups, and it's natural to have biases. We learn our biases in the culture we grow up in. So we learn stereotypes and biases from the time we're young children. Biases are often unconscious and they can be in contradiction to our stated beliefs. For example, growing up in Canada, you may learn to have biases that women should stay home and take care of children. And even if you don't explicitly believe that and your actions don't show that, you can have these unconscious beliefs or these associations. 
Biases can also be explicit. So that's when somebody states a discriminatory comment like, oh, women have no place in the work, the workforce. Um, these biases can impact our actions and our decision making, and that's when they become discriminatory. So if you hold an unconscious bias and it influences how you decide to hire somebody or how you evaluate a medical student, that's a type of discrimination. And it can be hard to see discrimination in individual interactions. So it's hard to say in one instance that the way a medical student was evaluated was discriminatory. But when we look at large bodies of evidence and we look at a large number of interactions, we can see patterns that tell us that women and racialized medical students get lower quality feedback, for example, from their preceptors. So discrimination can be hard to measure and hard to prove, but we see it in large patterns of data. Harassment is a bit different. So harassment is a legal definition which requires either repeated over time or one instance of physical or non-physical behaviors that are unwanted, that offend or humiliate the target. And the important thing about harassment is it's based on the perceptions of the target of that harassment and not on your intentions. So that means that you can end up harassing somebody unintentionally or even when you don't mean to. We know that in medicine, women physicians and trainees report significantly greater rates of harassment than their men colleagues, including sexual harassment, in nearly every study where this has been examined. The increased rates of harassment among women in medicine have been reported since the 1990s. Women in medicine report greater rates of harassment at work than women in any of the other STEM fields. So this suggests that men and women are not treated the same. Women are treated worse than their men colleagues. And lastly, there's important evidence that women in medicine are not treated equitably. The most prominent difference between men and women is that women become pregnant and deliver children. Many women in medicine breastfeed their children, and because women in medicine tend to return to work earlier than women in other careers, they are often required to pump breast milk while away from their babies to continue breastfeeding after returning to work. Men do not require this accommodation, and so providing lactation space at work is an issue of equity. Recognizing how a difference between groups can lead to different experiences and working to reduce barriers created by these differences. However, despite Canadian legal workplace requirements that state women must have an appropriate place to express breast milk at work, a survey that I co-authored, recently published in Postgraduate Medicine, reports that about half of all women residents stop breastfeeding early because of a lack of space at work to express breast milk. This evidence suggests that even accommodations to create equity that are protected by Canadian law are not being fulfilled for women in medicine. Perfect. So that gives us a lot of really important foundational kind of definitions. And actually, as we're talking about some of your research, I'd love to kind of delve further into some of the papers that you've published. Admittedly, our show tends to focus on reviewing articles that are randomized controlled trials or population-based cohorts. But in 2019, you had published a mixed-method study in JAMA looking at gender-based and generational differences in how physicians perceive and experience gender inequity within our own department of medicine. Uh, can you give us an overview for, you know, how was the study designed and who was included in this study? I can. So it's interesting because it's hard to do randomized control trials of experiences of harassment and discrimination. You can't randomize someone to living their life as a man and then living their life as a woman and those experiences. So we use when we want to talk about experiences and perceptions of harassment or discrimination or other types of inequities, we often use observational data or qualitative data. So this study design is a mixed method study 
and it was started with a survey of all members of our Department of Medicine. We used an instrument called the Culture Conducive to Women's Academic Success, or the CCWAS, which is a survey instrument that measures how favorable a culture is towards women. In this part of the study, we invited all men and all women to participate, and we had a response rate about 50% of all the women in the Department of Medicine and 25% of all of the men in our department. And we found that men in our department who had been working for more than 15 years, so a later stage of their career, viewed the culture towards women as more equitable than every other group. And early career women rated the culture as the least favorable. We explored these differences in a qualitative strand where we interviewed members of the Department of Medicine. We interviewed 28 physicians, including 22 women and six men. We asked them general questions about their experiences with gender and gender equity in the department. And then we performed thematic analysis of the data. We found that senior men felt that there was no gender inequity in our Department of Medicine, while most women were able to provide specific examples of gender inequity. We identified four major themes related to these disparities, harassment and discrimination, parenthood and caregiving, exclusion, and career opportunities. First, women and early career men provided multiple examples of harassment and discrimination that they had experienced or witnessed. Some of this harassment and discrimination was explicit, such as a man stating that women should not be hired to work in our department because they had had children and were too distracted, and some was unintentional. Importantly, no late career men participants were able to provide an example of harassment and discrimination experienced by their women colleagues. Early career women felt that men colleagues did not understand the challenges that they had faced due to parenthood or caregiving responsibilities. This lack of understanding led to ineffective mentorship, work-life scheduling conflicts, and outright discrimination. Women participants reported exclusion from informal and formal social events that they felt were key to career advancement, including dinners and sporting events. They felt that this exclusion led to less mentorship and less insider knowledge about how to navigate a career in medicine. And lastly, women participants provided specific examples of times when they or their women colleagues were passed up for opportunities for men with less experience or qualifications. Despite this, men participants did not perceive that there were disparities in the career trajectories for men and women in our department. Overall, we concluded that there was an important gap between the perceptions of gender equity by senior men in our department and the actual lived experiences of women. This gap means that senior men who occupy the majority of our leadership and decision-making positions may not understand the challenges that are experienced by women in our department who most need their advocacy. Those are really important findings. I mean it's often hard to kind of identify these issues within one's own department. Are there steps that are being taken to move forward, like plans to try to improve what's going on? Yeah, based on our results, we started an equity and diversity working group with the aims of increasing equity, diversity, and inclusion literacy among our general membership and among our leaders, and about targeted interventions to reduce the disparities that we identified. So we've started by having quarterly grand rounds on EDI issues so that all of our members can learn about these topics. And we've also started a new innovation called EDI Moments, where we spend the first five to 10 minutes of our leadership meetings in the Department of Medicine, reviewing an article or doing a reflection on EDI issues. And that's with the idea that when we prioritize equity, diversity, and inclusion by talking about it at the beginning of a meeting, by learning new terminology, by reviewing an article, we're 
first communicating to our leadership that this is important enough to take time to discuss. And we're secondly, increasing their ability to recognize these issues, be familiar with current practices, and to identify these issues for their people that they advocate for. That's really terrific. Another aspect of um, inequity relates to the gender pay gap in medicine. Uh, the CMAJ had a nice analysis on this topic recently published in August of this year. Uh, of course, there are different payment systems for physicians, but I think one thing people are always surprised to hear about is that even in, say, a fee-for-service model, there is a gender pay gap, despite accounting for differences in things like hours worked. What are the factors that are contributing to these pay gaps? You're right that the recent CMAJ review article by Dr. Michelle Cohen and Dr. Tara Kiran is excellent and reviews the gender pay gap in multiple settings. The differences are not explained by women working less or seeing fewer patients than men physicians. Most of the studies quoted in this article and most of the studies around the world control for these variables. We know that Canadian physician men and women both work similar hours, and the difference between their work hours is less than 10%, and the compensation gap is closer to 40%. We know that as the number of women in a specialty increase, the total compensation of that specialty decreases. So 14 of the 15 highest compensated specialties are male dominant. For some, this suggests that women choose lower paying specialties, but the studies that demonstrate a gender pay gap control for specialty. We also know that women are in medicine are encouraged to go into lower paying specialties like pediatrics or family medicine throughout their careers, which is an example of bias and discrimination. We know that the data on payments to Canadian surgeons suggests that women surgeons are paid about 25% less per hour than men physicians, even within the same discipline. So if the gender pay gap is not due to differences in work hours or specialty choice, what has caused this? We know that men physicians are more likely to refer to other men physicians. So in a fee-for-service world, they may see more, be able to see more patients. We know that women physicians receive more referrals for non-procedural billing codes. And men physicians are more likely to perform a procedure than their women colleagues, even in contrived patient vignette studies where the patient and all the circumstances are exactly the same. We've seen that nurses are less likely to help prepare or clean up procedures for women physicians, which contributes to non-billable work time. Women see more complex psychosocial patients than men physicians, and they spend more time per patient than men physicians. We know that women physicians report less control over their scheduling compared to men physicians in a group practice, so they're less able to double book or book overtime patients. And most notably, there's evidence from large studies that demonstrate women physicians have lower in-hospital mortality and lower 30-day post-operative mortality, fewer 30-day readmissions than men physicians. So women physicians are less likely to be sued and less likely to face disciplinary action than men physicians. So overall, we know that women physicians are paid less for at least equal work to men physicians. Now, do you have any comment on what is or what can be done to try to remove these pay gaps? We know that in other settings, like in the UK's NHS system, that they've had some success in reducing the gender gap. And a lot of it comes from transparency and acceptance of the problem. So in places where the salaries of physicians or the compensation of physicians is published and stratified by important factors like gender, race, and ethnicity, we can identify differences and we can work to target those differences. We know that in fee-for-service billing, a centralized triage process 
where patients are directed to see the next available specialist rather than allowing for selection of specific physicians can help. So you're not referring your non-procedural patients who need more psychosocial help always to the women surgeons. And we know that uh, similar models to this have reduced compensation disparities for emergency department physicians. So in situations where there would be like a big resuscitation or a code, the nurses in emergency departments would just page whichever physician they wanted to go and do the resuscitation. But now they're in settings where you have a centralized process where the person is decided in advance, you've reduced the differences between men and women compensation because billing for resuscitations and emergency is very well compensated. And in the past, in certain settings, the nurses would just page whichever physician they wanted to go do the resuscitation. But when they change that process from being a subjective decision by a nurse to a centralized process where it's predetermined which emergency physician is available for resuscitations, you actually reduce the differences between men and women for how much they get paid per shift. So that suggests that previously nurses may choose men emergency department physicians preferentially to go to these high billing resuscitations. Whereas when you take away that subjective choice and you centralize it or you make it a more objective algorithm, you take away that subjectivity, the compensation differences are reduced. We know that the billing codes need to be changed. So billing codes should reflect time spent with patients, including counseling and psychosocial supports. We know that there are differences in billing codes for similar procedures that are performed by in men and women patients. So for example, a common example is urologic procedures are compensated more than gynecologic procedures that are similar. So like a scrotal abscess is billed more than a vulvar hematoma when the surgical time and the surgical skill is very similar. And there tend to be more women surgeons in gynecology and more men surgeons in urology. So those are structural differences that need to be examined and changed. In academia, the publication of salaries and starting salaries, including benefits and other startup packages, can lead to transparency that reduces differences. So it almost makes like a, a second step where everybody needs to examine why they made those choices when they know people are going to see differences. So it's a very complex issue, but I, I do take some reassurance in the fact that other sites have been able to try to identify and address this. So I, I think I, I remain hopeful that the similar things could be done within our Canadian and even Albertan context. Changing gears a bit, more recently, you had published in the CMAJ looking at potential bias in the CARMS matching system. And CARMS, of course, is the system used by med students to match to Canadian residency programs. You were looking at potential bias when it comes to gender and outcome of the match. This was a cross-sectional analysis of, I believe, seven years of CARMS data. What did you find? We know that career selection is an important step that contributes to underrepresentation of women in many specialties. And we know that underrepresentation begets further underrepresentation. When women medical students are less likely to find mentorships, role models, or to see themselves reflected in a specialty, they're less likely to choose that specialty. There are fewer women in a specialty, then that specialty has higher rates of gender-based discrimination. So we know that the, the moment of specialty selection is really critical for determining underrepresentation. So we looked at applicants who ranked a discipline as their first choice and then their success in matching to that discipline. And we were only able to look at disciplines overall. We were not able to look at both disciplines and locations due to privacy issues. 
And we found that compared to male applicants, female applicants were more likely to match to family medicine as a first choice and less likely to match to a surgical discipline when that was their first choice. The overall effect sizes are quite small in this study and our sample size was large. So we included over 20,000 match applicants. What we don't know from this study is the effect in individual programs. So for example, if there's a single training program at one university that has a strong anti-woman bias, we would never be able to access that granular level of data. And the sample size is unlikely to ever demonstrate significance for these smaller programs. So as I was saying before, we can see discrimination in large sample sizes and across large patterns of data. But when we actually look at individual decisions and individual programs, it can be very hard to prove. We also don't know the impact of other forms of discrimination like race, ethnicity, and indigenous status based on the match results because CARMS does not collect that data. And then lastly, this is a critical issue because even if we detected important bias after the match, how would we address this issue? We can't repeat the matches. We can't really allow applicants to switch between programs. And so the issue of bias and discrimination in the CARMS match is a very important one. Yeah, absolutely. Now, another term that you've introduced me to is the term slash concept of intersectionality. Um, can you help explain what intersectionality means and, and what are the implications when it comes to medicine? Intersectionality refers to how the experiences of someone who has multiple axes of discrimination or multiple combinations of demographics that are usually subject of discrimination have different experiences than people who have other combinations or one axis of discrimination. So for example, we know that black women in medicine experience harassment and discrimination differently than black men and white women. And that those experiences of harassment and discrimination are not just summative, but they actually combine in unique and new ways. Um, intersectionality is really important because we often in studies, we look at one axis of discrimination. So we look at just women versus men, or black applicants versus white applicants when we do comparisons. But we know that the combinations are different and they're more than summative. So it's also important when designing interventions because they, you, we can't just assume that reducing disparities for women in medicine will have similar reductions in disparities for black or indigenous women in medicine. And so intersectionality is a really important concept, and it's hard to study because once you start combining axes of discrimination or demographics that can contribute to discrimination, your sample size gets smaller and smaller. And so in medicine and academia, this tends to get ignored or not studied as, as much. But the issues are just as important because we know through the history of feminism that intersectionality is often ignored. So when we make progress for white women, it does not always trickle down to Black women or Indigenous women or people who experience other forms of discrimination like ableism, Indigenous status, etc. And kind of along those lines, there have been some great initiatives to encourage Indigenous learners and Black learners to pursue careers in medicine. Here in Calgary, we have the Indigenous Health Program, as well as the newly created Black Applicant Admissions Process. Uh, can you help expand on why these are such important programs to have? Well, as I stated earlier, representation begets representation. So we know that if you don't see someone who has had your experiences or someone who looks like you be successful, then you're less likely to believe that you can be successful. You're less likely to find role models. And then the system is not created for you. So when you don't have people 
who have had your similar lived experiences of bias, harassment, and discrimination in decision-making roles or leadership roles, we know that we can unintentionally create systems that exclude people from your group. So the University of Calgary's Black Medical Students Association advocated strongly this past summer for the development of a separate applicant stream for Black applicants. And this was based on work done in other programs like at the University of Toronto to increase the number of Black medical students and ultimately physicians in Calgary. Um, the process requires the same credentials as the usual application stream and applicants are evaluated on the same criteria. So it's not a quota system, but rather applicants who self-identify as Black will have their admissions file reviewed by a file reviewer who is Black, Indigenous, or a person of colour. This is intended to reduce implicit and explicit anti-Black bias that may be contributing to the lower proportion of Black medical students at the University of Calgary. That's terrific. Now, you are actively recruiting for a study looking into things along the lines of diversity, harassment, and discrimination in healthcare. Uh, can you tell us what is the objective for your study? So most of the data I presented today are from studies that look at gender and medicine. And this is because disparities and experiences have not been explored for the other types of diversity that can lead to harassment, discrimination, or bias. So I've already told you we don't know the CARMS match rates for applicants of different races or ethnicities, but we also don't have that data for medical leadership or even for physicians in general in Canada. And so without that information, we are unable to identify these large patterns that we've discussed that tell us about how discrimination is negatively impacting people from racialized groups. And we're unable to target our interventions or understand what are the next steps. So at this time, we're conducting a survey to document the diversity of Albertan physicians. So we're collecting data on all characteristics that are protected by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as data on the leadership roles, experiences, or perceptions of harassment and discrimination for these physicians. And our aim is to document the current landscape of diversity of physicians in Alberta understand where these physicians are in terms of leadership and decision-making roles, and, and to characterize potential differences in how these diverse physicians are experiencing medical culture in Alberta. That's really fantastic. Um, we'll have some information on our website regarding some of the papers that we've discussed today. Um, but before we go, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Wow, I really don't. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's been really nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to go over some really important topics for us. And um, love to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.